I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4, Philippians chapter 4. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these brothers have some. As they make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. That is marked for you at Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4. I begin with a lengthy quote from a book, the title of which I'll give in just a bit. I've never believed in conspiracies. Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. The United States government is not hiding evidence of extraterrestrial life in Area 51. Men really did walk on the moon. The earth really is round. George W. Bush was not in league with the Taliban. Donald Trump's hair is not the result of experimental government testing. Although the author says, I could be persuaded. (laughs) And to be honest, conspiracy theorists don't do much to help their case. They wear tinfoil helmets and launch into wild-eyed, spittle-producing tirades against the national government, accusing it of everything from price-fixing to water supply contamination. They form clubs, complete with newsletters, secret handshakes, and regular attempts to make contact with alien life. They don't put money in banks because banks are obviously a part of the conspiracy, whatever that conspiracy may be. And unless unless you can pick 14 separate deadbolts, you won't be able to break into their house. Conspiracy theorists can be downright freaky. And conspiracy theories have always been the stuff of Harrison Ford movies and Tom Clancy novels, both of which I enjoy. But that's just it. They're fiction, stories, legends, circulated by guys who live with their parents and have too much time on their hands. They're simply too far-fetched to be believable. At least, that's what I always thought. Then I discovered that I was part of a conspiracy. A conspiracy of massive proportions spanning the entire globe. And you're involved in it too. Even if you don't know it. No one can escape it because everyone is part of it. Go ahead, lock your doors and barricade yourself in the cellar. Stock up on canned goods and cheap paperback novels. Bring out the generator and the bottled water you bought for Y2K. (laughs) Seal yourself off from the rest of society. Put on your tinfoil helmet. It won't do any good. And lest you think I'm exaggerating, it gets bigger. Satan is in on the conspiracy. The prince of darkness himself has a significant stake in the outcome. This is bigger than international price fixing and it makes Enron look like a fairy tale. Am I sounding wild-eyed? Is spittle collecting in the corners of my mouth? I speak the truth. I'm not crazy, at least not in the please pass the tinfoil kind of way. Let me bring forth the evidence. Exhibit A, you and me. Do you ever wonder how it's possible to be to be so blessed And so unhappy at the same time. To live like kings and behave like ungrateful pigs. To have more than any generation in history and yet still crave more. What's wrong with us? Is it the water? Is it cell phone waves? Did we receive an experimental vaccination in our infancy? No, it's the conspiracy. 
And what is it that I'm ranting about? What exactly is this conspiracy? And who are the masterminds behind this sinister plot? Let me spell it out for you. It's a conspiracy between the world, my heart, and Satan to steal my happiness. These three are plotting and scheming together to make me perpetually discontent. They're stubbornly determined to poison the joy I have in God and to deceive me into believing that I can find joy somewhere other than God. They want me to dishonor God by gorging on the unsatisfying pleasures of the world instead of finding true joy and satisfaction in Christ. Everywhere I turn, the world is offering me pleasure. I'm told to buy more things, have more fun, Purchase a bigger house, climb the career ladder, get married, stay single, don't think about tomorrow. Happiness is just around the corner in aisle 13 at Best Buy. The world makes big fat promises of immediate pleasure. It flashes its artificially whitened teeth and tells me to enjoy myself. The world lies to me. Satan joins with the world, whispering lies in my ear, saying that God is holding back from me and doesn't want me to be joyful. He tells me that if God really loved me, I wouldn't be sick or I wouldn't struggle financially or be single. If God was truly good, I wouldn't be worrying about losing my house. Satan invites me to find satisfaction in something other than God. It doesn't matter if it's pornography or community service, as long as it's not God. Satan is happy as long as I'm not happy in God. Satan slanders God's character and his goodness. Satan lies to me. And my heart doesn't want to be left out of the conspiracy, and so it plays right along with the world and Satan. It tells me that I need to have certain things, and I need to have them now. I can't be happy unless I get that new television or salary bump or house with a nice backyard or a good night's sleep. My heart persuades me that all my longings for peace and comfort and joy can be satisfied in things other than God. If I have children, I'll be happy. If I get married, I'll be happy. If I can finally get out of this stupid college, I'll be happy. My heart lies to me. The conspiracy is powerful. Walking into Walmart or any retail store is like walking into conspiracy headquarters. As I walk through the store, I'm assaulted from every direction. Fifteen high-definition televisions stand at attention, each one promising outstanding picture quality, superior media experience, and world peace. A box of cereal informs me that I can be slim and heart-healthy if I eat a mere three bowls a day, seven days a week. A high-gloss magazine advertises an article entitled 223 Ways to Be Happier and Get What You Want Without Doing Any Work. Before I entered Walmart, I was pretty happy with my life. Now I want more things. The conspiracy is everywhere. The grand conspiracy of the world, Satan in my heart, is called the greener grass conspiracy. Their objective? To have me always believing that the grass is greener somewhere else. Always wishing that things were different. Always dreaming of a brighter tomorrow without ever enjoying where God has me today. That's the title of today's message. The Greener Grass Conspiracy. It's taken 
from the title of that book, and it's at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to look at it so that you can follow along as we look at Philippians 4 today. And this morning from Philippians 4, we're going to see how Christians defeat the greener grass conspiracy. We read, beginning in verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, thank you for assembling us here for this time to look into your word. Lord, each of us brought into this room the cares and the distractions of the world, the enticements of the tempter, and our own deceptive hearts. Lord, we need to be corrected. We need to see something greater to which to fix our gaze. And we know what that is. No, we know who that is. We know it's you. So we ask you, Lord, to help us to be changed, to be refocused, so that we will go back out into the world and be able to resist the allure of Satan and the enticements of the culture and be able to focus upon you and please you with our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say in that outline a few things, the first of which is this. Christians are content in God's control. Christians are content in God's control. Verse 10, again, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Now, the occasion of that statement is that Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, is writing to the church in the city of Philippi to thank them for a gift that he's received from them. It was a monetary gift sent to Paul by a man in the Philippian church named Epaphroditus. If you just flip back to chapter 2 and verse 25, this Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus and this gift are mentioned. Verse, chapter 2, verse 25. He says there, I'm going to send back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So it's this monetary gift from the hand of Epaphroditus sent from the Philippian church to Paul that he's now commenting on in chapter 4 and verse 10 when he says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. And this particular gift was a continuation of kindness that they had shown to Paul in the past, even though they themselves did not have much in the way of material possessions. Elsewhere, Paul wrote of the generosity of the Macedonian churches of which Philippi was a part. The Bible says this, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And that's why then chapter four and verse 10 says you have renewed your concern for me. 
It's because they had done it before, going all the way back to Paul's first acquaintance with the people in that city. But it had been a long time between gifts, about 10 years, in fact. He was especially thrilled to receive this gift because he's under house arrest in Rome for preaching the gospel and prisoners in the Roman system were dependent upon outside support for everything. The Greek word that's translated renewed in verse 10. It's a rare word that means blossom again, like perennials in the spring. So when Epaphroditus appeared in his cell, it was for Paul like spring flowers suddenly bursting into bloom. There was no containing his joy. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced greatly. So think of Paul there locked up, existing on the most meager provisions, dealing with the various pressures that were listed in chapter 1 of other people preaching Christ but intending to harm Paul. He's longing to hear about his churches and suddenly there's Epaphroditus like a flower bursting into bloom. But it says in verse 10, at last you've renewed your concern. And that can sound negative. But in fact, he's not blaming the Philippians for being slow as if he were saying, at last you've finally gotten around to it. Instead, it means that now in these last few days or these last few weeks, after an extended gap caused by all sorts of things, not the least of which were Paul's various travels and then perhaps their own ability to give. So an extended hiatus caused by all sorts of things. You've now renewed your concern for me, for me that you showed in the early days 10 years ago. And to make sure that there's no misunderstanding about that, he adds in the last part of verse 10. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. John MacArthur says of this, Paul's gracious attitude reflects his patient confidence in God's sovereign providence. He was certain that God in due time would arrange his circumstances to meet his Paul's needs. There was no panic on Paul's part, no attempt to manipulate people, no taking matters into his own hands. Paul was content because he knew the time, seasons and opportunities of life are controlled by our sovereign God. A sovereign God who the Bible tells us in Ephesians one works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Many of us are familiar with the famous verse in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The Bible tells us that in the midst of human affairs, it is always God who is the central player and God overrules in the affairs of men to move things in the direction that is best, that he desires. Proverbs tells us humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And God works this providence through the actions of people. You may remember a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 2 of Philippians in verse 13. Chapter 2 and verse 13 says, God works in you. God works in you. He works in us to will and to act. For us to will and for us to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God works in us for that to happen, and he works in other people as well. You remember the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery and forgotten about by his his brothers treacherously. And at the end of that story, God in his providence moved all sorts of things in order to bring them years later back into contact. And as they 
realize that they're in the presence of this brother who's now risen to prominence in Egypt, just under the Pharaoh serving in that in that government. As they realize this, they throw themselves at Joseph's feet and Joseph says famously in Genesis 50, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. You remember the story of Esther and Esther, a queen in the king's court and She was brought to a particular purpose that God had for her to save his people. She was told by Mordecai in Esther chapter 4, You have come to royal position for such a time as this. So when I say that Christians then are content in God's control, I don't just mean, friends, that we have a sullen resignation to that fact. No, instead, friends, like Paul, we take comfort and even rejoice that it's the case. Because you see, the God who is in control is also good. It's not enough for you to say and for me to say and for us to believe, I know God's in control, gritting our teeth while we say it. No, the God who is in control is good. It's not just that it's the plan, but the plan is ultimately for our good. The author of the Greener Grass Conspiracy says, often we treat God like some sort of divine dentist. We know at least in theory that he's good and that all he does is good. We know from Romans 8.28 that God works all things for the good of those who love him. But when life starts to get rough, we adopt a grin and bear it attitude. We know that somehow God will work everything for good. But in the meantime, we're going to climb into our bunker and prepare for whatever bombs God is going to drop. This is not biblical, God-honoring contentment. A truly contented man freely and joyfully submits to the will of God for his life. He doesn't kick and scream against the will of God. He doesn't murmur and complain about his season or circumstances of life and doesn't grumble about the things he doesn't have. A contented man isn't jealous when he sees others prospering because he knows that God is always good to him. The contented man knows that it doesn't honor God to only tolerate singleness or sickness or broken dreams. Contentment freely and joyfully submits to God's will. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson said, Whatever our condition is, God, the great umpire of the world, he called him has decreed that condition for us and by his providence has ordered all the things that go along with it. Let a Christian often think to himself, who has placed me here, whether I am in a higher sphere or in a lower, not chance or fortune as the totally blind heathens imagine. No, it is the wise God who has by his providence fixed me in this place. So we're being called friends. In the midst of the greener grass conspiracy to say in the words of the hymn, whate'er my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My father's care is around me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. So ask yourself. Do you believe that God is in control and do you believe that's a good thing? Christians are content with God's control. Second, Christians are content with God's provision. 
content with God's provision. If we believe in God's control, then we know that he'll act according to his good timing and for our good and will be satisfied with whatever he chooses to provide. So verse 11. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Author and pastor Kent Hughes says of this verse, Paul's declaration of contentment was meant to grip the Philippians' attention because the word that he used for content came straight from pagan Stoic philosophy. New Testament theologian Gordon Fee remarks, on the surface, Paul's explanation looks like a meteor fallen from the Stoic sky right into his letter. The Stoics regarded contentment as the essence of all virtues. For them, contentment described the mindset of the person who had become independent of all things and all people. The Stoic line was, man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his will to resist the force of circumstances. The Stoic Seneca put it this way, the happy man is content with his present lot no matter what it is and is reconciled to his circumstances. The Stoic ideal was a kind of self-contained superman who could rise above it all in independent self-sufficiency and serenity. But Paul transformed that term with a powerfully Christ-centered redefinition of contentment. Paul and all who are in Christ, now hear this, are God-sufficient as opposed to self-sufficient. Contentment is rooted in the eternal God rather than the temporal self. So while Paul and Seneca might appear to be close, they are a universe apart. Paul is sufficient and he's content not because he's independent, but because he's totally dependent upon Christ. This need for contentment, friends, is so great that it's addressed a number of times in the Bible. In the ministry of John the Baptist and in his preaching recorded in Luke chapter 3, He says this to soldiers, Roman soldiers, be content with your pay. Can you see that hanging in the union hall somewhere? (laughs) Hebrews chapter 13, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. First Timothy chapter six, godliness With contentment is great gain. And then just two verses later, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. That is, if we have the basic necessities. But friends, the stimuli for discontent are limitless. The things with which we can be confronted that move us to be discontented are innumerable. The people who can be catalysts for our discontentment are countless. In our day, the sheer number of options available to us helps create discontentment. I mean, we all think that more options are better, and often that's true. More purchasing options generally means there's more competition for your money, so those who offer what you're looking for have to make it better and cheaper to get the sale. But it can create bewilderment as you decide which to settle on. And it even invites doubt once you've made the decision because there were all these other ones that you saw. So I could have had, maybe I should have bought. Advertisers and salespersons have one objective in their work. 
to create a need you didn't know you had. And most times, you do not really have. But they need to convince you that you need their gadget. So they bombard you with messages all designed to make you discontent so you'll be moved to buy. This is why for many of us, we were actually more content when we had fewer choices available. If you're a young adult, you can probably relate. And if you're an older adult, perhaps you can remember. When you were in high school, you had few, if any, options about what you would be doing Monday through Friday. You were going to go to school for five days and take mostly what the curriculum dictates from year to year. But as you got closer to graduation, you began to hear from well-meaning people a very unhelpful question. So, what are your plans? Now, to this point, you haven't had to plan much of anything or choose much of anything in those areas. But now you're bombarded with mailers from schools that you never heard of. When you try to narrow down a major and you look into a particular school's catalog, that doesn't help at all. Some have hundreds of possible majors to choose. And so 75% of college students change their major at least once and half change it twice. And many of those who graduate still wonder whether they did the right thing and they may be discontent with their choice. This is true in choosing a movie to watch when there are tens of thousands. It's true in choosing what to order in a restaurant that has dozens of choices. For my part, I like a restaurant that's just got a few things (laughs) that they do well rather than a bunch of stuff that they do mediocre. But that's just me. And it doesn't matter your age or the particular thing that's at issue. When we have lots of choices, it always leaves open the possibility that I could have made a better one. Did I choose the right car? The right house? The right doctor? Do I have the right health plan? The right spouse? The right church? Now, that problem that I've just described is only true in societies like ours where you have choices for all of these things. In New Testament times, the options were far fewer, but apparently the possibility of discontentment was still very real, and that's why it's so often addressed in the Bible. And that's because there are always objects of comparison that can move you toward being discontented. In every culture, in every time and place, you can always want to look better or be better at something or feel better, or have better. And the supposed need for those is enhanced as you compare yourself to other people and other circumstances. Each phase of life has its has a different battle in this very same war. And each of the genders does too. My wife Kim is reading a book right now called The Envy of Eve. And it focuses on the particular temptations of women toward discontent. And men have their own as well. So friends, we need to ask ourselves, do I trust God so that I'm satisfied with wherever he has me? Christians are content with God's control. They're content with God's provision. Third, Christians are content in God's faithfulness. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul endured a number of things and yet was still joyful and content. Let me read some of the scriptural accounts of Paul's ordeals. From 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, to this very hour, he says, we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When we have become, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Second Corinthians six and verse four. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. How bad is it for you? After reading that, Paul had learned to experience contentment in the extremes of deprivation from hunger to homelessness, to being in rags, to beatings, to labor and exhaustion, to intense humiliation. We know a lot about his deprivations from these hardship lists. Like I read, we know little of his experiences of abundance, but he says, I've known both. I've known how to be in want. I know how to have plenty, but we can imagine what those times of plenty were. For example, in the city of Philippi, when the church there was born, likely there were feasts in the home of his first convert, a businesswoman named Lydia, a prosperous businesswoman at that. And perhaps also in the home of another notable convert in Philippi, the Philippian jailer from Acts 16. Certainly there were times in cities like Ephesus and Corinth where he enjoyed the pleasures of friends and feasting amidst the beauty of God's creation and especially the beauty of his people, God's people, as they would honor Paul for bringing them the gospel. And during those times as well, Paul was content. What's remarkable for us, though, friends, is that Paul knew the secret of being content in either extreme, whether hungry or at a wonderful Mediterranean meal. In fact, it may be more of an accomplishment to be content when you have a lot. John Calvin explained it this way. He who knows how to use present abundance soberly and temperately with thanksgiving 
and is prepared to part with everything whenever it may please the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to his ability and is also not puffed up. That man has learned to excel and to abound. This is an excellent and rare virtue and much greater than the endurance of poverty, he says. Here's Paul's terminology in verse 12. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. And that terminology is borrowed from the vocabulary of some false religions where secret originally referred to induction into a mystery cult. Though the word secret was no longer limited to that usage at the time Paul wrote this, the sense of initiation still lingered. And so Paul's point is this, that Christian contentment remains a mystery to those who are outside and can only be learned from the inside by those who are in Christ. In truth, contentment is a quiet secret known and cherished only by a few, God's few. Paul had come to know the secret of contentment over a period of time. His learning was part of his spiritual growth and his sanctification. And the question for us is, have we learned the secret of contentment? And it does, friends, come by learning. Notice Paul says in verse 11, I've learned. Verse 12, I've learned. I don't put this into practice in my life. You don't put this into practice in your life just by hearing it. You you learn it. I don't just hear it and then it automatically happens. In the Hear this. In the midst of your circumstance, your present circumstance, whether with plenty or in want, whether things are good or whether they're difficult, in the midst of what you're in right now, you begin to practice this commitment. We're going to, I'll give you some ways to do that when we get to the end shortly here. So we need to ask, do I believe God is good in all my circumstances, whatever they be? Christians are content with God's control, content with God's provision. They're content in God's faithfulness. With all the changes, plenty and want and all that that go on with us, what remains is God's faithfulness. We're content in God's faithfulness. And fourth, we're content... By God's power. We're able to do this by the power of God. Verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now the Greek word that's translated with three words I can do means to be strong, to have power, to have resources. Now notice the NIV has updated the translation from I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things which is what many of us quote and is the life verse for some. It might be hanging on a wall in your house somewhere. It's a great verse. But it's often misunderstood to mean I can do everything through Christ. But the truth is there are things you can't do. I will never dunk a basketball. And I can quote Philippians 4.13 all I want and I still won't be able to dunk a basketball. I read an illustration of a boy who was in Little League and he was in a Christian home and he would learn verses as a kid and he fixed on this one and he actually put that on his baseball cap in Little League when he was batting. I can do all things through Christ. That means I can hit that ball. Yes, you can hit that ball. You you go to church services, you listen to these these glorified preachers that are really uh, they're really motivational speakers in religious language. You can do everything in Christ, right? How many things can you do? Everything. I don't hear you. 
Right? Everything. Not really. And here's this boy with this thing on his hat. And he says, I still struck out as much as I used to. It's not that I can do everything. It's I can do all of this. That is, I can be content in whatever my situation is. Christ is the one who empowers those who obey him to do this. It's saying I can do whatever God assigns me to do. And he's given this assignment of contentment to each of us. So Christians are content with God's control, his provision, his faithfulness. It comes by the power of God. And last but not least, Christians are content in God's son. You see, Paul has talked about the secret. But if you read Paul, you just read Philippians. It's clear, not what, but who the secret is. It's the Lord Jesus. Paul's secret wasn't complex or mystical. It didn't involve discovering a secret herb used by Aztec Indians or channeling the power of his inner strength or learning to suppress all his desires. Paul did not need a comfortable house, career success, or sexual satisfaction to find joy. He needed one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ. True contentment is found in a person. It's not found in getting what we want or in having difficulty removed from our lives. Contentment isn't the result of the absence of pain or the presence of material blessings. It's found in Jesus Christ, period. Without Christ, we can never be truly content regardless of the blessings that surround us. And with Christ, we can be content in the midst of every circumstance. If it's true that contentment and joy are only found in Jesus, if Jesus is the cure for discontentment, then it's crucial for us to cultivate a deep relationship with Jesus. He is the supply of true contentment. You can't get it anywhere else. If we want to be content in all circumstances, we must draw our strength from Christ in all circumstances. We need to be continually close to Christ. There's no alternative. Life is too bitter and difficult and our hearts are too sinful in order for us to survive on our own. Friends, you will not be able to win this battle by just having a relationship with Jesus for an hour on Sunday every now and then. Your relationship with Jesus is every moment of every day. And you draw from his supply every moment of every day. And we are renewed in the words of the great apostle. We are daily being renewed in the inner man through the strength that Christ provides. So what do we do? I'm going to give you three things to do and we're done. I've said several times, ask yourself this. So let me summarize the ask yourself. First, Ask yourself what you believe about God. In the midst of your circumstances, what do I believe about God? Is he in control? Okay, he's in control, but is he good? Is he good in all my circumstances? Does God have the power to see me through this and even grow me in it? Ask yourself that. And that's all about what you believe about God. You're here because you claim to believe in God. Now the question is, what kind of God do you believe in? And that will show up in your circumstances and how you react to them. 
So first, ask yourself what you believe about God. Second, if you're going to win this battle of contentment, limit the voices who speak into your life. Remember the sales guys? They're lying to you. The world's lying to you. Satan's lying to you. Your heart's lying to you. Limit the voices that can speak into your life. I said a couple of weeks ago, when you go to work, turn the radio off. You know, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, which we're going to start in a few weeks, but at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who wrote it, says at the end there, he says that of the writing of books, there is no end. He says, but we need to listen to the voice of one shepherd, he says. Limit the voices of those who can speak in your life. Turn, You know, when you get up in the morning, some of you just have the TV on. Maybe you didn't turn it off last night. It's just still on. It's just blaring in the background. And people are barking stuff out to you. Limit the voices who speak into your life. They're all trying to tell you you need stuff. Andrew Fuller, the founder of the modern missions movement, says this. The company we keep and the books we read, and I would add, and the stuff we watch, he said insensibly, that is unknowingly, unconsciously, form us into the same likeness. So ask yourself what you believe about God. Limit the voices who can speak into your life. And last, don't look back once the decision is made. Just accept right now you're perfectly capable of screwing things up. As am I. So make the decision and don't look back. Don't beat on yourself. How can I be so stupid? We know how you could be so stupid. We're stupid. So just get over yourself. Make the decision and don't look back. Irma Bombeck, you remember her, the humorist? She wrote a book. Here's the book. Here's the title of this book. The grass is always greenest over the septic tank. And here's your take-home truth. The grass can always be greenest wherever God has placed you. If you have the right perspective, let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for allowing us to open the truth, the eternal truth of your word. Now, Lord, we've got to apply it. I've got to apply it where you've assigned me and how you've assigned me. My brothers and sisters need to do the same. There are some here who don't know you, who don't have any idea what joy, deep, internal joy and contentment are about because they don't know you. So Lord, we ask you, as only you can do, to work in each heart this week. I pray that some will approach me or others in this church today before they leave and say, I want to know something about how to have a relationship with Jesus. And that others will go this afternoon and go today and they will put these into play. They will ask themselves regularly, what kind of God do I believe in in the midst of my circumstances? They'll limit the voices that get to talk to them. And then they will confidently make decisions for your glory with the best of our ability. And then, Lord, we won't look back. We'll entrust it all to you. Oh, Lord, glorify yourself then through us in our lives. And may others see a difference in us because only Jesus can provide this contentment. It's in his name we pray. Amen.